Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the QuietMark podcast. I'm your host, Simon Gosling, CMO at QuietMark. And QuietMark is the independent global certification program associated with the UK Noise Abatement Society Charitable Foundation. Through scientific testing and assessment, QuietMark identifies the quietest products in multiple categories spanning many sectors, including home appliances and technology, building sector materials, and commercial sector products. In February last year, QuietMark launched its Acoustics Academy, an online platform of expertly verified leading acoustic products and solutions for every building application area. Available through acousticsacademy.com or via the building sector stroke Acoustics Academy button on quietmark.com's homepage, visitors to our Acoustics Academy are first invited to select a building type from the following options. Residential, commercial, educational, civic, infrastructure, governmental, healthcare, arts and entertainment, and public spaces. And in this episode, our guest is Adam Cossey, who is a partner at Hawkins Brown. Established in 1988, Hawkins Brown is now the seventh largest UK practice, working in a wide range of sectors, including residential, infrastructure, education, workplace, and civil community and culture, CCC. Adam leads the CCC sector, which is involved in a number of projects, including community and higher education libraries, including University of Bristol's £100 million new library, as well as a number of town hall projects, providing new workplace environments for local authorities. In advance of this recording, Adam was saying that, as a practice, they have witnessed a number of recent trends within such projects, with one of the most common themes being to address well-being. This had become a priority before the pandemic, but has become even more so post-pandemic. One of the key criteria to help address this is the acoustic environment, and Adam has seen a distinct move away from the desire of the open-plan work-learning spaces. Hawkins Brown has carried out research in conjunction with BCO and are currently looking into the requirements of hybrid working spaces with acoustics being high on the agenda. On his LinkedIn, Adam says, I studied social and urban geography at Reading University before completing architecture at the AA and the Bartlett. This has provided me with a good educational foundation, which I've used to continue my interest working at a number of scales, from master planning to working closely with communities. I champion cultural, civic and community projects and have a natural enthusiasm for collaboration and brief making. I have been instrumental in the design of a number of civic and community buildings and have also worked within the education sector, having been involved in numerous school and higher education projects. I firmly believe, he says, in the social aspects of the built environment and have built up a number of design workshops with children as well as giving presentations in a number of schools. Well, we're delighted to have Adam in the studio with us to discuss this today. So thanks for joining us, Adam. Thank you, Simon, and thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. We're delighted to have you on the show. Quite a curriculum vitae you have there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I didn't recognise myself, but yes, you're, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> and I see from the look of your background, you're sitting in a Hawkins Brown office today, aren't you? Where are you? So we're based in, well, we've got actually a number of bases. Okay. Uh, our headquarters, or our, our sort of main home, I suppose, is in London. It's Clerkenwell in London. Um, we've also got a number of studios both around the country and actually internationally now. Um, it's got another studio in Manchester, Edinburgh. LA, we opened up two years ago, right. and we're just opening up uh, Dublin next month. How many are you as a, as a team? We're 300 of us, although, we, although we're a bit we're large, we very much see ourselves as being quite a small practice. 
Can I just say, I can see that from your website, hawkinsbrown.com. I uh, went on there, of course, in researching for this conversation. And the first thing I see is a video. And I have to say, it looks like a really fun place to work. You've got a really warm, inclusive culture. Uh, it looks like a, a really good place. You must enjoy it there. It is. I mean, you're right in saying we got established in, was it 1988? Um, so we're fast approaching our mid-30s. Um, <laughs> although we still very much behave like we're in our, our mid-20s, if, if not sort of younger. Yeah, very um, cool. Um, there's about 300 of us within the organisation. Right. But we're structured into about 10 studios of about 20 people each with support staff. And this allows each studio to take on and resource large projects, but we're still small enough to be agile, responsive, and provide really good pastoral support to people within the studio. We're also really interested in constantly testing out new ideas and new trends uh, within our organization and within our actual um, workplace environment and very much seeing it as a kind of living laboratory. Oh, okay. Well, it's like a test bed for some of the stuff that you're working on because you mentioned well-being trends and the changing of the office plan from open plan uh, learning spaces. Is there stuff that you can do in your test centers that sort of helps evolve thinking within that uh, post-pandemic office design world or civic design world? So... It's true to say, after, over the last sort of six or seven years, we've been trialling out different ways of working and really sort of testing out new ways of thinking. Um, and one of the ways we did that was about six years ago, okay. um, those who allowed us to put an app on their, their smartphones. And, those, and by doing that, we managed to sort of track movements and flows uh, through the office and through the kind of the workplace. And that began to reveal some really interesting findings, actually. So what we did witness was as a kind of natural rhythm to the day. Um, people would collaborate, socialize, uh, and gather together to share ideas. And actually, very few people were at their desk um, for any long given period of time. Mm. Um, so we began to question, actually, you don't need one desk, one person. And we also began to... Um, uh, to understand that actually at any given time within a working day, about 20 to 25% of our people, the staff, were actually out of the office in meetings, on sites, or doing workshops and, and so on. So that gave us a sort of a really good understanding and evidence to begin to reconfigure our office. So what, the first thing we did was we did away with, with one desk for one person and began to design the space to provide different work environments so social collaborative spaces, quiet working zones, indeed a desk if you needed that desk at any, any given time in a day. And we began to explore different ways of working and just trialling out um, different workspaces within our, uh, within our work environment. And we could take some of those ideas, bring them to our clients and collaborators and begin to um, demonstrate how we could actually incorporate that into our design thinking. That's um, interesting. In both from schools to offices to indeed um, local authority workplace environments. That's really interesting. And you weren't met in your own offices with a descent of people going, Oi, what have you done to my desk? <laughs> Maybe a little bit uh, um, uh, initially. <laughs> um, I, think, I think it's true to say so it, it was really successful to begin with. Um, but as we grew in size um, and number, we began to get more people into our into our office and that did begin to cause an effect on actually the acoustic environment that we all work within 
So our initial testing of ideas was to break up and divide the space into different kind of work zones with furniture, but it was predominantly an open plan office. And we began to experience actually the more people we, we got into the office, we had to really carefully consider where the kind of breakout spaces were and actually begin to design into that space um, some specific quiet working zones. Um, and actually, we started doing that through furniture and providing sort of acoustic properties within our within our own environment. That sounds excellent. And what I suppose it enables to do with your clients, 73% of offices in the UK were open plan offices pre-pandemic. And I've spoken to a few guests on the show who are saying we're moving away from that. But um, you're able to go with evidence-based solutions in order to sort of sell this evolution of the office plan, I guess. We are. Um, and I think that's that's really important, actually, that we actually provide sort of quantitative and qualitative analysis of testing of these themes and ideas that are coming through. I mean, what's really interesting, actually, working with a number of clients and on briefs for different workspaces and work environments, is that we've noticed a, a trend actually over the, the last 18 months or so. And what we have witnessed is at the outset, so prior to the pandemic, was a shift to moving towards a kind of six to 10 ratio, i.e. Uh, six desks to 10 people. Right. And now we're fast accelerating towards a brief and requirement actually moving to a three to 10 desk ratio. So wow. from that, we've got people working from homes. So it's a hybrid working um, environment. And we can bring in more space within the office, bringing a greater range of uh, work environments and also address these sort of acoustic qualities um, uh, within this space as well. We're sort of going through this fast accelerated workplace revolution, I suppose. There were certainly ideas out there way before the pandemic to begin to test this hybrid way of working, but it was never actually materialised. And what we've now witnessed is a sort of a fast movement to actually begin to, um, to design these spaces and to realise them. I suppose with this hybrid way of working, you're, you've got some of the workforce in an office and some people working from home. I guess that's seen a lot more introduction in with the workplace of the Zoom screen and, and therefore AV setups, bigger screens and speakers playing people on what you and I are doing now, a Zoom call. What sort of challenges might that present to sound within a workspace? Because, of course, you wouldn't want that in an open plan, would you? So that's a really good point, and it's something we're, we're currently addressing and, and thinking about, one within our own living laboratory, our test bed of our, of our, um, yeah. our own office space, but actually clients as well. So currently we're looking at a number of clients' um, uh, office spaces. And one thing we're, we're looking at designing into the, um, into the workspace are areas where you can actually have small breakout spaces for one person with a laptop, um, acoustically buffered, from other areas within the work environment. So we're beginning to, acoustics is actually becoming more and more uh, of a, a sort of an issue that we need to address from the very outset of the design um, uh, of any space, actually. Acoustics plays an important role, a vital role in well-being. In fact, when it comes to the well, 
uh, Building Institute and the Well Standard version two, um, they have a list of ten concepts which are measured and uh, performance verified to be taken into consideration for achieving Well Standard. And there's light quality, water quality, air, thermal comfort. But one of the most performance uh, categorized areas is sound and acoustics, as we heard from Ethan Bordeaux, the sound concept lead at Well on episode two of the Quiet Mark podcast. Do you think that the industry is aware of the the importance of the role of sound and acoustics in this growing trend of well-being, how much of a solution it provides? I don't, but before I come on to that that question, actually, I think it's I think it's important to set the context in the way themes begin to develop within the design industry and, and architecture in Great. particular. Yeah, please. So do. over the last thirty years or so. There's been a number of themes that are sort of being and trends that have began become addressed and then embedded into our very way of thinking and designing. Good examples of that being access and inclusivity, sustainability. And these were kind of initially in the very early days seen as of nice to have bolt-ons right. um, uh, within projects. And now that's absolutely central to the way we design. Um, you don't even question it. You know, of course the building has to be fully inclusive and accessible. Of course, it has to be sustainable um, and address those those issues within that. One theme we've witnessed, and I've witnessed, I've witnessed in particular on a number of projects I've been involved with over the last, say, five, six, maybe even seven years, is this aspect of well-being. A really good example being the University of Bristol's library project. Well-being was certainly central to the brief. This is back in 2017. But what we have noticed it, it becoming ever increasingly more important to address that. And I'd like to think, rather than this being a kind of nice to have bolt on, again, it's another theme that becomes embedded into our very way of thinking and designing. So I'm more than aware, and as designers, we're we're more than aware, obviously you address that, as as you said, through um, ventilation, it's daylight, it's circadian lighting, it's access to landscape, um, uh, it's biophilia, but it's really important that acoustics are addressed as well. How does one measure that though? Can I ask, because obviously when you say that sustainability was a nice to have and now it's a mandatory selection, but one can look at a product. In fact, our previous episode to, to the one we're recording now was a Sustainable September and whether it's a company making wooden floors or plaster ceilings, they're able to categorically sort of show that it is sustainably produced it's a it's a measurable thing but saying mm-hmm. something brings well-being into a space is a different kettle of fish isn't it it really is and that's something we need to the industry needs to address um you know there, there are certain criteria out there that you can begin to meet i mean um i was looking the other day at um, again acoustic requirements within a project and looking at building bulletin 93 it's a fantastic piece of guidance that was written I think, back in 2003 or so and being updated, I think, last update in 2014. So, uh, so the guidance is that it could really benefit actually being revisited and being considered more holistically in the delivery of the, the, the well-being theme to address aspects of well-being, again, to sort of empirically evidence of how we're achieving a better environment for all and, and addressing the sort of wellness and well-being uh, within those spaces. For those that aren't familiar with BB93, could you give a sort of an in a nutshell summary of what it's it's out to to establish? So it was, it was set up, um, it was actually funded by um, Department of Education 
it's the acoustic design of schools and it provided kind of really good performance standards to create sort of the most optimum environment to, to learn within. Um, so it makes, you know, there's a lot of sense a lot of, and a lot of science behind this as well. But it was more for the kind of the school environment, but it was such a good piece of sort of guidance. We use it on multiple projects uh, to inform our thinking on, on providing and delivering the best acoustic environment we can. And so the revisitation to that would be to take it further than its original intention and also make sure that it, it the parameters extend to products uh, being selected that enhance well-being through acoustic quality. You could. I mean, Briam as an example of really good guidance that most designers use to measure the level of sustainability being achieved within a project. If you took something like Briam and actually adapted it or reused it to provide a kind of evidence-based measurement of achieving well-being uh, and wellness within a project, then that could be fantastic. We could really use that actually on on all our, our projects, whether that be workplace, home, or indeed education. I read in the introduction, Adam, that you lead the CCC sector, working on a number of community higher education uh, libraries, very quiet spaces and town halls. Could you share some of your experience in these civil areas, please? So my background over the last oh, 20 years or so has been very much within the design of education buildings, so from primary schools to secondary schools and up to higher education and university buildings. And actually what's really interesting is primary school design can inform university design just as much the other way around. And actually, if you think about primary schools, the way they're designed, they've got these fantastic spaces within the uh, within their, their buildings, kind of social breakouts, collaborative spaces, as well as you know quiet learning spaces. If you take that into universities that weren't really addressing that, say, 15 years ago, we've very much used that thinking to inform our our higher education buildings. One building I'm working on currently is with the University of Bristol and it's their new library project. And we've been consulting really carefully with a number of stakeholders, talking to the students and talking to the staff, as well as talking to members of the community. And that's really informing our thinking around the requirements of a, of a library. And actually some really interesting conversations we've had with some of the uh, year one and year two students is this constant request um, for spaces to be able to, to digitally disconnect within. And a theme we noticed in our conversations and discussions was this sort of constant intrusion within, within their lives of sort of digital interference or digital noise. So we began to address this requirement within the building by looking at how we can design the environment to provide quite digital spaces, I suppose. We actually even looked at... <laughs> A Faraday cage, could that actually disconnect Wi-Fi from, from certain areas? We haven't gone that far. Mm-hmm. But what we have got is a space so over four floors. It's um, vertically connected with an atrium space. So that provides good ventilation, natural ventilation throughout the building, and daylight into quite a deep plan. And around these spaces, the atrium spaces, we've designed areas to be slightly more collaborative, slightly more noisy, busy, 
that as you move out to that floor plate towards the periphery of the building, you've got fantastic views over Bristol, you have the quiet working spaces. Um, and actually, interesting enough, 10 years ago, if we're designing a, a library, the brief would have been a strong emphasis on digital content. Now it's very much about weaving the digital with the analog. So um, one of the, you know, one of the requirements within the building is to house and accommodate as many books and collections as we can. You know, and it's very much a building that encourages serendipity, chance discovery, um, as well as an area, and, and the smell of books can need to come into that building as well. Goodness, anyway, taking wonderful. the theme forward of addressing different qualities and different environments within that space, um, and acoustics being actually central to that thinking. As you move up vertically in the building, the atrium disconnects. So actually the floor plates are um, standalone. And as you go up towards the top of that building, again, we have areas that are just dedicated to, to quiet thinking spaces, actually. You know, um, sometimes to allow you to read your book, to write, or indeed just gaze out of a window um, uh, can be some of the best things you can do, actually to begin to address your, your kind of state uh, of wellness and, and, and well-being in general. It's a fascinating tale you're, you're telling here. And I, I have to say, I'm really glad the students were consulted. Is that usually the case that the end user is very much at the table for design? I mean, at Hawkins Brown, the way we design is, is very human, human-centric, um, is what we like to call it, the way we think and design you know, it's absolutely essential that we listen to whether that be a five-year-old primary school pupil or indeed an 80-year-old user of the building. Every single person experiences the use, uh, experience that building in their own way and therefore should be listened to. So we do do consultations with, with young students as well as a vast array and range of community members. And we do that really from the outset of any particular project to inform our thinking um, and the briefing um, and the development um, of some of these spaces within the buildings. We had a lot of conversations with the um, director of library services and the staff within the library, as well as the students themselves. And rather than using you know, a search engine to look for research in a particular subject, which you know certainly do, however, if you're within a library, so you may remember using the index system. So you go and find and search for a book. And then you may look left or right of the particular book you're trying to track down or even behind you. And suddenly find another book that's equally, if not more fascinating than the one you were first looking for. Sure. So that's what's that's what's brilliant about the real, I suppose, you know, the analogue. Um, it's this kind of constant serendipity or, um, or finding things that you may not know you were looking for, um, but in the real, more analog world, I suppose. The students are giving you the feedback of, we want to be off our devices, we want more analog, we want the smell of books. It's an olfactory experience they want. And there's a bit of romance of Hogwarts, which I, I wouldn't be surprised if that had some sort of influence <laughs> knowing that generation as I do with my children. I really mean that. I think that there's a sort of yearning towards that study, that way of study. And it's uh, wonderful to see you taking that feedback and um, uh, adapting it through visual and acoustic design. I think what's, what's really interesting is actually the way we also go about getting that feedback and carrying out those workshops. So oh, yeah. yes, we do use VR models and sort of CGI, so computer generated images. But with that, 
we also use board games <laughs> and and card games. So we've got one game that we've developed in house, uh, and it's a, a, a stack of cards, fifty two cards, each with a different word on, and we give them to uh, uh, to consultees. Uh, and literally get them to shuffle through the pack of word cards and lift out three words that they think sums up what they want within the, within the project, what they don't want, and either way, so one that doesn't apply. Um, and we keep on repeating this exercise that begins to build up a really good understanding of requirements um, for the project. You said Hawkins Brown is 30 years old but has the spirit of a 20-something. I think you're probably more the spirit of a nine-year-old, actually, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I say that affectionately, actually, is that I saw a fantastic project on your website uh, in which uh, Hawkins Brown worked with school children exploring the links between poetry and architecture. And there's a beautiful photograph of children in the Barbican area. And then there's some feedback on your website. And the one that stood out for me, which was a rather honest bit of feedback from one of the students that said, I hated poetry before. I didn't even want to go on this trip, but I actually kind of liked it. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I mean, I've done a lot of workshops with, um, with children. And actually one workshop we did... It's actually with the Sorrell Foundation many years ago now. Um, and it was a group of about 10, 11 years old um, from a school in Deptford. And they were literally our client. They told us what they wanted. Um, uh, and they decided what they wanted to redesign in their school. And that was the toilets. Um, and they came and we met with them pretty much on a fortnightly basis for maybe about a couple of months. And they would go away and they would really tell us when we got it right and really tell us when we got it wrong. <laughs> so it was fantastic. It really was a brilliant project. And we end up fundraising and actually realising um, uh, the refurbishment of their toilets for them. Oh, I love that. I love that. I also read that you're working on town hall projects. And so I'd love to know a bit more about your recent findings in, in that kind of area. So you're absolutely right. We just recently finished off um, the refurbishment and reimagination of um, Water Forest's town hall. Uh -huh. um, and it's fascinating, actually. I mean, the, it's a really progressive um, brief um, that was set for us and a, and a good challenge. So the town hall itself was originally designed sort of into wars, 1930s, there or thereabouts. But over those years since then, the services have become increasingly dispersed in a number of buildings throughout the borough, some accessible by the community and some indeed not. And what we've witnessed in both Water Forest and a number of other boroughs um, and local authorities up and down the country is this sort of consolidation of their estates to provide a greater efficiency, but also really interesting, it's going back to very original purpose and function of the typical town hall i.e. it's bringing back the services into this building and it's encouraging and allowing um, the local community and local residents to come in and actually use these spaces both within the building and only outside the building. Another, another aspect of the town hall projects is also looking at the workplace for the council staff. So I, I return back to what we were doing in our kind of living laboratory mm. at Hawkins Brown office and designing these workplaces that are 
nimble, agile, flexible, um, and provide a whole range of spaces. And I go, again, go back to that example of providing a, a reduced desk ratio to one to one staff. But returning to that kind of this very purpose of the town hall, uh, we've carried out refurbishment within the kind of civic suite spaces. Again, opening that, that up for local local community use, as well as providing a space external to that building, which was a was a fountain designed out there. It was, it was really deep. It was a health and safety hazard. <laughs> you know, children could have drowned in there. It was it was a deep deep pool. Uh, surrounded by two lanes of, of traffic, and that yeah. was just outside the main front door. So what we have designed is a, is a new civic um, plaza, it's a new square. It's actually the size of Somerset House within London. It's not far off uh, Trafalgar Square in size, so it's absolutely vast. It's about yeah. 50 metres by 50 metres. Goodness. What that's allowed us to provide and the council to provide for the borough. So we have incorporated into, into this particular project and we're looking at incorporating to a number of other projects is really high quality public realm. And that's another theme we've witnessed um, sort of as we come out of, this pandemic, out of this pandemic is the need for good quality external spaces that people can access and use. So we designed the space can be reprogrammed as a, as a square for a food market, for events or indeed a, an ice rink in the winter. So the fountain, it's a dry fountain, the fountain can switch off, it can be programmed, and that program could actually be it's an open source. So it can be reprogrammed by students or kids or schools. And there's lights within there and as well as um, sound. So the whole thing can be orchestrated around different light and sound and different events occurring. So it's this fantastic space, it really is. Adam, this is really important. Funnily enough, for some reason, I was reading this morning, I was reading online about the closure of the Arcadia Group, which of course owned Burton's, Topshop, Evans, Top Man, Miss Selfridge, all these Philip Green stores, because I was thinking about what's happening to all this famous real estate and as I read into it, there were loads of loads of loads of comments uh, attached to the article, many from the public, because it was saying that what's happened to the stores, in fact, the stock has been taken over, I think I'm right in remembering, by Boo, mm-hmm. Boohoo and ASOS. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they're selling the chains and they've bought them for 20, 25 million, okay, uh, and they're selling the clothes and they're continuing that name online only. But the reports that I read said that there was no uh, intention or desire to hold on to the real estate anymore. It's going to go purely online. Those huge shops that we all know, especially in Oxford Circus, are gone. And the comments were along the lines of, Saturday will never be the same. Social shopping, meeting friends, dressing in the dressing rooms, listening to the music on the stereos, flirting with one another and all this sort of stuff. That that experience has gone from the high street. Uh, And I started thinking, goodness, yeah, because we all did that as teenagers and I've certainly seen my children growing up doing that. And and that's a massive aspect of community and uh, gathering that's just gone now, you know, with the closure of so many stores. Of course, We've still got Zara's, we've still got Night Towns, but Topshop and Top Man and Burton's, those stores really served us a, a swathe of community. And I guess the reinvention of these squares and these spaces in civic centres, people, you know, in their homes during, you know, lockdown and working from home, but they need spaces for community and gathering and entertainment. And it sounds like the town hall is servicing that. 
It is. And actually, you raise a really valid point. It's actually, what do those buildings then become within the high street? And actually, there's some really interesting thinking and work going on within the arts and cultural sector. You know, two thirds of the population don't go to a museum or don't go to a gallery. So how can you encourage more people back into these into these spaces, making them more relevant, actually? Um, so there's certainly one school of thought saying, well, actually, could you reprogram and reuse some of the spaces that are in local high streets and indeed city high streets as well and begin to bring in cultural programs, but not just cultural programs, spaces that people really want to use, such as digital labs or maker spaces. Could local community members come in, use that to upscale, to produce uh, um, products, and then that product becomes curated or collected within the actual gallery space itself. So you've got this nice reciprocal relationship that begins to occur between what we would traditionally call a museum gallery, but maybe not anymore. And so rather than a gallery being the sort of flagship central building within a, within a large city, could it become a, a smaller building in its own right and actually begin to exist as a kind of a number of hubs or nodes or networks beginning to repurpose and reuse some of these large department stores or indeed smaller shops. So it's really interesting how we begin to look at cities and they could be reconfigured uh, for, you know, the sort of current requirements that are now coming out. Adam, you've been a, an architect for 20, 25 years and with Hawkins Brown for the past eight years. What sort of advice would you give to young people in the field uh, studying to become architect? What pearls of wisdom might you share with them? I'd say before you, you go and study architecture, go and study what your passion is, uh, what you're absolutely inspired by. And, and architecture can indeed be that. I mean, the reason I studied architecture and why I practice architecture is, is, is not, it's my, it's my interest, it's my hobby, and it happens to be my job. So I think that's, that's absolutely critical to going off and studying architecture. It is a demanding course. It is a long course to, to go and study. But it's so rewarding. No one day is the same. Um, you can be doing workshops with kids, if we've spoken about earlier. You're visiting building sites. You can be uh, working with clients and developing really groundbreaking, pioneering sort of brief requirements for innovative projects, drawing, working internally within teams, making models, looking at VR, looking at the latest software um, and how we begin to communicate with other engineers. So it's, it's so varied. Every single day is, is different. And that's what I love about it. So I'd say stick at it. <laughs> it does take a long time. I do know that Arb and Reva uh, are looking at trying to reduce the length of the course. And actually something we're really encouraging Hawkins Brown as a company is providing actually apprenticeships. So coming into our office and, and actually studying as well as working for us and earning an income at the same time. And we're really encouraging that a lot. Oh, that's great. Well, your passion for what you do really comes across and uh, I'm sure our listeners will have enjoyed hearing your experience. Thank you so much, Adam, for taking the time to talk to the Quiet Mark podcast today. Great. Thanks, Simon.
A huge thank you to Adam Cossey at Hawkins Brown for taking time to share such interesting stories with us on the Quiet Mark podcast. I've no doubt our listeners will enjoy listening to them as much as I did recording them. Thanks for listening to the show. I hope you can join us for future episodes. Until the next time, take care and goodbye. Bye for now.